Good morning. Good morning. Well, there was Rich Hofer. Good morning. Are the rest of you here? Great music, great worship. I just love it. I think it's so amazing when God's people get together and sing. As I was sitting there, I was just thinking about how amazing it is when you've been in a church for a while and you know the people and you can hear the voices and you can almost pick out certain voices that really inspire you. And I just love God's people being together. It's great because as a family, we lift up our voices and we sing to him. And that is what makes it worthwhile. It is so great. Well, this morning, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we have been preaching on renewal. Uh, we looked at renewal through Christ, renewal through repentance. And this morning, as Wade mentioned, we're doing renewal through the word. And we're going to be focused on Psalm 119, uh, verse 17 through 24. And I'm just going to read those for us real quickly here. Uh, Psalm 119, starting in verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So renewal through the word. What exactly does that mean? How are we going to be renewed by the word? Well, if I were to say to you, how are you renewed by the word? You probably would reply something in the typical uh, evangelical Christian uh, way, saying, well, I, I'm, I have devotions, and by that we mean we're spending a time regularly in the word of God, uh, trying to let that word sink into us and motivate us and inspire us to do more than we would do otherwise. And with that, we accompany some prayer. Uh, some of us get really creative, and we might read a story or a book, uh, like Daily Bread or some other things, just to get us going. Um, I'm not saying how often we do that. Some of us do it daily, but more than likely, most of us are pretty uh, hit and miss with that, right? Uh, it happens. So how do we get renewed. Um, back in the day when I had a bunch of guys uh, with me in my other church in Nebraska, we decided that we wanted, this would probably be the early 90s, to hold one another accountable. Uh, if you remember those days, if you're old enough, uh, accountability groups were really popular. So there were about five, six of us that decided to get together weekly. And the idea of an accountability group, in case you're not familiar with that, is that you get together and you come up with something uh, that's going to let other men or other people that are with you and hear your commitment to keep you accountable. It's like New Year's resolutions, you know. I'm going to do this and this and this. And so the way that we, in our particular accountability group, set this up was that each of us had to pick five things, five areas that we wanted to be held to. And they had to be measurable. It wasn't enough just to say, 
I want to read the Bible. We had to say how long we're going to read the Bible, um, how much prayer time we're going to commit to, and so forth. So we picked our five, and the idea was <coughs> that we would, uh, if we failed, when we came back in and the rest of the table asked us, how have you done, Dave? They'd go down through our list, bam, 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 bam. And if we failed, we had to pay $1 for each one, right? And, uh, you know, it was kind of fun because I learned very quickly that Christians and even some pastors, because we had some pastors in there, uh, really missed their calling. They should have been attorneys, right? Well, how, have you done your exercises for this week? You know, we had one guy said he was going to treadmill uh, for a half hour uh, every day. And the first week, you know, he nailed it. Yep, treadmilled every day. Uh, got on that thing and kept my exercise routine going. The second week, he was like, well, I did 20 minutes. Can I get by with just 20? And of course, being gracious, we were like, sure, you know, because the rest of us probably weren't doing that. But we just kind of came, by the fifth, sixth week, you know, that's where the attorney stuff came out. So, well, I didn't, I wasn't exactly on my treadmill. I was at the grocery store and I was pushing a cart, but that took a half hour of me walking up and down the aisles. And does that count? That should count, right? I mean, I don't know a dollar for that, you know. And one of my young guys, his uh, kind of the area was he wanted to make sure he went on a date night once a week with his wife. And he had failed first week, second week. And we're like, how hard can this be? Just grab your wife and do something and have fun, you know, creative. And so he came in the next week, and he was so excited, and he was like, I did it. We had a date night, and we're like, oh, this is great. You know, we all knew his wife really well, and personally, I was going to call her and make sure this was the truth. But uh, I said, all right, tell me, what did you do in your date night? And he said, well, it was great, Dave. Uh, we walked down the hill from our home to Fox's gas station. Fox's gas station, you know, and like a lot of gas stations, it was a gas station that had a Taco John's put on it, right? And he said, we ordered a six pack and a pound. If you don't know what that is, that's six tacos and a pound of potato olays, little tater tot things. And we sat on, on the curb of the gas station and we ate them. And that was your date night? Yeah. And then we walked back up the hill, I dropped her off, and then he went and did something on his own. And we all voted. It was like categories, you know. And we all were like, no, that doesn't count. Oh, man, you know, and actual anger. There was anger. You know, I've done it, and I suppose we should have been a little bit more encouraging. Same thing when we read the Bible. Well, I'm going to spend, you know, 20 minutes reading the Word every day. Uh, it's hard. It's hard. We don't do that. Uh, to end that story on the accountability group, we put that dollar in a jar, every one of us. There were some, after a while, there were some guys who just brought a $5 bill and put it in there. They didn't even bother sharing how their week had gone. We got the message. But pretty soon, there were hundreds of dollars in this jar. And, and I'm not saying this to brag, but my thought was, hey, let's do this. At the end of the year, we can each take a portion of that money and we can take our wives out to dinner. This would be fun, you know? We could do a date night. Uh, I got voted out, and what they all voted for was a golf trip to Rapid City, right? That didn't suit well with our wives too much, and it ended up, 
I thought it was kind of God's hand of judgment because there was such infighting on that trip. People weren't talking to each other. I mean, these were lifelong friends and the golf games went terribly. We got yelled at by some older men who were golfing behind us because we were leaving divots in the fairway and it was ugly. It was just ugly. I have not been in an accountability group since, right? So I'm not encouraging that for you today. I'm just saying you can do your own accountability, right? You can make your own commitment. What are we going to do to make our renewal happen because we're in the Word of God? Well, let's draw our attention to something, some, some facts about the Bible, right? You're probably wondering what this stack of books is it's sitting next to me, and don't worry, I'm not going to be reading through them. But I did want to bring some illustrations to you just to give you a feeling for where we're at today. And I'm going to do that by first talking about where Christianity has been, where the church has been, right? Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. And when we say we want to have devos or be renewed, and we think, I've got to have devotions, I've got to spend time in the Word, that's very modern. That's a, a response from people who live in our day and age. But for the, the majority of the years of Christianity, that's not even been possible, right? Uh, that can't happen because they just didn't have access to the Bible. Now, I brought up here with me this morning a copy of the Greek New Testament. This was the original Bible. Uh, this is the way that the apostles wrote it uh, sometime after Christ died, uh, at least within 20 years of the resurrection. Uh, one of the books probably appeared, the Gospel of Mark and so forth, and probably before the close of the first century, all of those books were written and were circulating at different places in the Roman Empire. Wherever the churches were planted, there were sections of the New Testament. It took a while for those scrolls to get compiled into codexes, which are the way we would call a book. And I will say this, as neat as all that is, and it is neat because today we have supercomputers, there's one in Europe that works nonstop uh, of putting together all the fragments of Greek manuscripts that are still out there. And there are considerable, there are thousands of them. And they have put them together uh, just in the last couple of years so that we have the most accurate Bible that anyone has ever had in human history since that first century, right? But in their day, these were rare. It was unusual for people to even have one scroll of a book of the New Testament. Um, the fact is that most churches met in homes. They were house churches. And the people who could afford to host the church were wealthy people. Uh, they owned a large place. And they might have had a scroll or two scrolls, uh, but they were the only ones that could really have them. Certainly, no one took these home. You, you couldn't go to a local scroll store and buy a copy of your own New Testament. That would have been too difficult. So uh, it still was very, very difficult to have devos as we think of them today. And then if we scoot ahead to some 400 years or close to it after Christ, we get to the Latin Bible, right? Jerome translates the Greek manuscripts, uh, the New Testament, into Latin. Because the truth of it is, is that as Christianity became sort of the governing belief system, religion, 
of the Roman Empire under Constantine, uh, the western part of that empire spoke Latin. And so they wanted a Latin Bible. So they did that. And we've had this for a lot of years. Jerome did a very good translation, and it's been around. But here's what happened. You know, the Roman Empire went down in flames around 400, a little bit after A.D., and whole groups of people came into Christianity, the Germanic tribes, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, right, uh, the Gauls, all these people. And they only came into Christianity because somebody in their rulership had probably lost a war or a battle, and it was forced upon them that they had to become Christians. And so once the king was baptized, everyone got baptized. But there were no Bibles in their particular languages. The only Bible they had was the Latin Bible. And no one could really afford to have a Latin Bible. But even if they could, they couldn't understand it. Uh, they wouldn't have been able to read it. All the masses, uh, the, the church services of their day were held in Latin. And so it was common to find the Latin Bible in a church, right? A chapel, a cathedral. Some were very ornate. Some were uh, beautifully produced. But it wasn't like you could just go into any uh, peasant's home in the Middle Ages and pull a Bible off a shelf uh, and, and find the Latin Bible. Because, again, it wouldn't have made any sense to them. They just didn't read it. Uh, there's a reason why, I believe, that in certain historical periods as time went on, that is called the Dark Ages. Because people didn't have access to the Word of God. Not like we do today. That didn't change until the Reformation, right? 1500. And then our famous little monk, uh, Martin Luther, after he wrote his 99 Thesis and he got to work on the Book of Romans and translated, and he did it's a great service by understanding that justification has to come before sanctification, uh, which kind of flipped the theology of those days on its head. Uh, he decided that people deserved to have a Bible written in the vernacular, in their own language. And so he produced his own German Bible, 1534. Amazing. And what was really cool about this is that it coincided, uh, came a little bit after the invention of the printing press. So with all these other Bibles, they had to be hand copied. That's why they were kind of rare, right? But with this one, for the first time, we see the Bibles rolling off the presses. So popular. The German people, the people of the Holy Roman Empire, they love this. Now, this is kind of a you know, bland edition, but inside is one of the woodcuts, colorful woodcuts that they put with this Bible. And the people, the common people, thought it was amazing. 200,000 uh, Bibles were printed. Over 11 different editions came out during this time. But still, the cost was prohibitive for the common German Lutheran to own. Again, it was very rare for people to have a copy of, for themselves of these Bibles. But if they could, if you were wealthy enough or your family wanted to pool resources together, you could pick up a copy of the Bible in German. And you say, well, not everybody spoke German. True. But this was an effort to do that. This was a way that Luther saw that he could get the Word of God out. 
Then there was the Geneva Bible, popping right along, not too far behind it. Geneva Bible is written by English Puritans who had escaped Britain's uh, persecution of Christians um, under Bloody Mary. They ran to Geneva, Switzerland, which was under the protection of John Calvin, and they put together what would become the most popular Bible of its day. Uh, there were other Bibles, by the way. I'm not being exhaustive in my treatment here. But the Geneva Bible was a very direct translation, coming right from the Greek. Uh, it was in your face in some ways that it was written. Uh, this is a facsimile edition so that you can see how they wrote it. It, again, also benefited from coming off the printing press. People loved it. It was the most popular Bible on the continent, on the European continent. Um, and it far eclipsed the sales of the Lutheran Bible. In fact, this was the Bible of the Scottish Reformation. At one point, uh, under John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, it became a law that if you could afford it, you had to buy a Geneva Bible. You had to have one. Now, not a lot of people could afford it, uh, more so than at any other time in history, but not everyone had one of those Bibles. And then, I didn't bring it with me, but you're all familiar with the King James in 1611. Again, English Puritans writing this Bible, uh, translating it, uh, dedicating it to good King James, as they would have said. And that became the Bible of the Americas. It traveled across the Atlantic uh, with the Puritans when they settled in Massachusetts Bay Colony and they spread out through this country. And for the next basically 200 years, people read the King James Bible. That Elizabethan English uh, was the thing that made this country. Now again, did everyone own that Bible? Well, more than others had before them. You had the big family Bibles. And what was so important about those? Well, when you open the flyleaf, if you've seen those, if you're old enough, you know that there was a genealogical record in there, right? Who got married to whom? Uh, who was baptized and when? And so forth and so forth. And those Bibles were just passed along. They were your inheritance. But in those days, it would have been very common for a father to open up that big Bible. He didn't carry it around with him by any means. And he would read sections of Scripture to his family out loud, if they were that kind of a family. Little by little, the Bible became democratized, right? It became something very popular and available. We pop ahead to uh, the 1900s, you have the Revised Standard in 1901, the New American Standard in 71, the New International Version in 77, uh, the ESV in 201. Um, you have the Net Bible, the first Bible ever produced to be totally online. You didn't have to buy it. The New English Bible uh, put together by professors at Dallas Seminary. Uh, today, when we come together as a church, or a youth group, or a Sunday school, and I say, open up your Bibles to Psalm 119, it is likely that the majority of you will not be flipping pages, right? You're looking at a phone, you're looking at an iPad. Uh, if you're at home, you might be on your computer. If you're on the road, you could be listening to Audible and listening to the Word of God. The last statistics I saw was that the average American home has 4.4 printed Bibles. Now think about that for a second. At first, that doesn't sound like overwhelming statistic, but every home in America 
What they're doing is taking the total number of Bibles, the population of this country, they're putting them together, 4.4 printed editions. That's not counting all the electronic editions that people invest in. 4.4 printed Bibles. And you would think, wow, this country's not doing bad. We're doing great. How many people have access to this Bible compared to this whole history that I just ran through? Not until the last 75 years has the Bible been so available to God's people. Why doesn't it show more? Why aren't we renewed? Why do we have to be encouraged to be in it if it's so easily accessed? Study that came out about seven years ago by the American Bible Society and Barna working jointly together says that in this country, one of the most biblically illiterate parts of this country is right here. People who don't know their scriptures, don't own Bibles at all, probably are below that 4.4 printed editions. It's right here. And their media market that they were measuring, it was Cedar Rapids as the hub, uh, Waterloo to the north, Dubuque to the east, and Iowa City to the south. We are not in the Word of God. Our community is not in the Word of God. If you're a faithful believer here today or watching at home, and you say, well, I'm in my Bible, I love my Bible, the odds are is that your neighbors don't. They're not even beginning to access it. And if they try to, the odds are they don't know what they're reading. Right? How's that possible? And for the last five years, by the way, Cedar Rapids area, that media market area, which includes us, has consistently been in the bottom five. Not San Francisco, not Las Vegas, not New York City, but Iowa City, but Cedar Rapids, but Waterloo, but Dubuque. We're not being renewed in the word. It's a different emphasis, renewal through the word, than the other renewal topics we've gone through. When I stand up here and preach on renewal through Christ or renewal through repentance, you're taking something that a preacher is saying and you're saying, I want to apply that. But you, as I've just demonstrated, you have a Bible. You don't need me. You don't need anyone to encourage you in that. You have Bibles everywhere. I'm going to suggest this morning, it's that by the very fact that there is so much scripture available, we take it for granted. Uh, even Christians, we take it for granted. It's going to be here forever. It's not a problem. Americans have turned to the scriptures throughout our history through revivals, the Great Awakenings, uh, the Cane Ridge Revival, the Billy Revivals, the Billy Graham televised revivals, and then as well as stressful times like one of the wars, the World Wars, the Civil War. I have a Civil War in my, a Bible in my house right now on one of my shelves. Uh, it was distributed to everyone that fought uh, so they could have their own little Bible. But there are times when we're not under stress. We get lax. We don't use the Bible like we should. Involvement in the Bible usually predicts for us as a society the involvement in church. Uh, the Cedar Rapids area has shown a steady decline 
in access and involvement to churches. Only 17% indicate that they're involved in a church. And a study by Group Magazine has put it in two categories. For those who aren't involved, you have the nuns and you have the duns. And I'm sure you've heard those phrases before. Nuns meaning that people who have never been involved with the church want nothing to do with a religious organization of any kind. And the duns, those who grew up in the church or had temporarily some involvement with the church and then now have decided that they don't want anything else to do with the church because of the stress, the drama that can happen in a church. They just don't want to be associated in any way. We have our work cut out for us. So as Christians, we find ourselves in this seemingly paradoxical situation. Bibles are more available today than any other time in world history, yet increasingly, Americans could care less. In fact, open hostility to Christianity is on the rise. You know, you don't have to watch much TV till you realize, well, who are the bad guys in cop shows and any kind of shows, FBI? Well, we can't rail against, you know, radical Islamists anymore because they are misunderstood. We can't rail against any minority groups because that just isn't done. Um, we're not going to go against anyone except for Christians, right? Uh, I, I can almost predict where we're going in a TV show because the cameraman and the director make sure that you see that there's a Bible on the nightstand of whom? Well, the serial killer, of course, right? It's the Christians that are causing the problem. And of course, the recent events haven't helped that situation, that perception in any way. It's unfortunate that so many white supremacists and militants strongly identify with the Bible and with Christianity. And we find ourselves sometimes yelling at the nightly news, that's not what we believe. That's not true Christianity. They're not acting like real Christians. But what we find is that the majority of people, they're not listening. And even if they were, they just could care less. The message of the Bible is becoming obscured by those who claim to rip the word of God. And the only way to combat that is for us as God's people to be experts in the word of God. And when I say that, I don't mean that you have to become a pastor or a Bible scholar. I just mean that you have to feel comfortable in opening the word of God. Well, today, as I said, we're in Psalm 119. And let's just turn our attention there again. Let me say this, Psalm 119 is an amazing chapter, the largest of all the Psalms, 176 verses, right? And it's divided, you probably know this, but I'm gonna say it in case you just haven't been in 119 before, it's divided into the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, right? Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, so forth. And within each section, there are eight declarations, eight statements telling you something about the Word of God. It's a subject and a compliment. There's something said about the Word of God, and there's something said about the passion for the Lord. They go together. Word of God, passion for the Lord. Word of, Word of God, passion for the Lord. Over and over. 176 verses. And in each section, let's say the first letter is Aleph, every statement begins with that Hebrew letter. Remember, Psalms were written with the intention of being sung. They're, they're poetry. So as you read through this, you're repeating that same letter for eight verses at the beginning. 
in bet, the second section, you're doing the B sound, the bet, for the next eight verses and so forth as you go through these scriptures. It is so deep. It is so wonderful. Uh, Christopher Ashe in his book, which is a commentary on 119, says that he's aware of a 17th century pastor that preached 190 sermons <clears throat> just on Psalm 119, right? It's amazing. There's so much symmetry and beauty in this passage. I, I love, I love this chapter. It is so amazing. Coming to Psalm 119 is kind of like being thirsty, and you go to your kitchen faucet to get a glass of water. And when you turn on the handle of the cold water to put your glass under there, suddenly you are just engulfed in a flood of water that's of epic proportion. It is so strong that it just overwhelms you if you really read it, because it is full of power. It's full of passion. It's full of statements of truth. And you wonder how you're going to get back to the faucet, not just to turn the handle on, off, but to get the water back in there, right? It's impossible. You just have to let it wash over you. Well, we're going to be careful today. We're only going to turn that faucet on just a bit. So we're going to go to verse 17 so we don't get overwhelmed. Here's what the uh, psalmist is saying here. He starts out, and it's really two sections. We have 17 through 20, and then 21 through 24. And in this first section, the psalmist believes that the Lord and his word are a comfort to the godly. Deal bountifully. That's really one word in the Hebrew. Deal bountifully uh, with your servant. Uh, there's a close connection in this particular section of Psalm 119 between the psalmist and his God. I am passionate about you, Father, but I'm also passionate about your word. So deal well with me. Uh, reward me greatly so that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold all the wondrous things here. This demonstrates a very close relationship between the psalmist and the Lord. Servant is a designation of loyalty and submissiveness. A little bit down in there, uh, the, the psalmist writes in verse 19, I am a sojourner, I'm a stranger on this earth. That's not an uncommon designation in scripture. Remember uh, Abraham, the one who God first called to start his chosen people relationship with the nation of Israel, uh, he was a sojourner. He had moved from one place and God was bringing him into the promised land and he lived in tents. He did not build permanent structures. It was part of his testimony. He was like a classic nomadic Bedouin uh, tribesman. He just lived in a very simple way. And the psalmist is saying the same thing. This world, the way it is right now, this isn't my home. I'm a stranger on this earth. Hide not your commandments from me. He's speaking to the fact that those who don't understand us as Christians, we're alien to them. We have nothing in common with them in a sense. We have to do things that are different. I'm a sojourner. I'm a stranger. I'm just moving on. How different is that than how most of us want to live our lives? We love to put down roots. We love to uh, get involved in our community. And all those things are great. 
But the idea is, is that ultimately we have to be mobile. We have to be willing to be moved at the Lord's discretion. Where does he want you to go? What does he want you to be? I am a sojourner. I am a stranger. <laughs> Lord, help me. I will obey your rules at all times. And then he switches at, to the second section, and he's going at it against those who don't believe, right? Those who are outside of the word of God. Verse 21, you rebuke. That word is strong. And by the way, both verse 17 and 21 are imperatives. It's almost a command. Rebuke. It's not saying I'm observing this. It's the fact that you do rebuke the insolent, the accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Uh, he doesn't identify whom he is speaking to here, but it's other than the fact that these are people who just have little regard for the word of God. They wander. They, they move away from your commandments. Uh, the Bible in the Old Testament, understanding its precepts and so forth, is always something that gives stability to a society. And by the way, there's like eight different words uh, in this passage uh, and throughout Psalm 119 that speak about the Word of God. And they use these words interchangeably. So you have to get used to that. The words like rules, commandments, the word. And there's a couple different words for word. There's word debar in the Hebrew, word imra in the Hebrew, um, so forth. And as you read through this, understand this is poetry. So he's going to use words that kind of rhyme and, and kind of move us along. But they all mean the same thing, whether he's using commandments uh, or scripture or whatever. And they it just mean this, that people out there scorn your word, the truth of what you're saying. Take away from me, in verse 22, scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies, even though princes sit plotting against me. In other words, I'm going to have resolve. What does the word of God do for us? It gives us the ability to handle opposition. It gives us the ability to... Uh, take a testimony to our society and when there are those who don't like what we're saying or who try to plot against us because of that God's word gives us the constancy gives us the ability to persevere uh, that's an amazing thing your servant will meditate on your statutes that's the result that's what the psalmist is saying even though there are these scoffers and these wanderers and these insolent and accursed ones, I will meditate on your statutes. They can do nothing to stop my resolve to being in the Word. What's stopping your resolve to being in the Word? If you were in an accountability group today and guy, somebody was asking you, are you in the Word of God? And you had to admit, because honestly you're not, what would be the thing getting in your way? Is there open hostility to you reading the Bible? Is it costing you financially? Uh, is there some illness? Um, do you, all the things that you do during the day and time doesn't seem to allow? How would you rewrite this psalm? This psalmist is saying, I don't care what comes against me. Uh, your servant will meditate on your statue. And notice the verb meditate. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm just reading it. He's not just skimming. He is deep diving into the word. And lastly, your testimonies are my delight. 
They are my counselors. Again, Hebrew poetry, statement A, statement B, subject complement. He is saying basically the same thing. It is a pleasure. What a privilege to be in the word of God. Wow. And it's my counselor. It gives me guidance in life. Oh, the psalmist is so excited about that. Now, what we see in here, again, as I said earlier, love of the word, love of the Lord. Love the word, love the Lord. If you're going through a time where you don't seem to have a love of the word, how's your love of the Lord doing? If you have a time where you're having trouble feeling the love of God, how's your love of the word doing? So for the psalmist who's writing Psalm 119, he sees them as linked together. It can't be separated. If you're in the word, you're going to love the Lord. If you love the Lord, you want to read his word. Uh, we're, we're fooling ourselves if we think that we're walking with God and everything's hunky-dory, but we're not in his word routinely. Uh, deep diving into it, meditating on it. They're linked together. They have to be. Now, sometimes when I preach, I, I've been accused of leaving us up here in the Ethernet, right? But we're going to come down and we're going to put some action to this today. I hope you got on your way in. There were some pages back there, just one piece of paper. But this is your homework assignment for this week, and maybe it'll take you a month. I want you to think about writing your own Psalm 119. And instead of using the 22 Hebrew letters, you can use the 26 English letters, all right? So we're going to do this, and th th by the way, I can't think of a greater thing to do with your kids. If you're trying to think of how can I have family devos, I hear that question quite a bit. What do I do for family devotions? Um, how can my wife and I, my girlfriend and I, spend time in the Word together? Uh, how can my friends and I gather around? Well, do this. Here's a great project, right? Uh, take the letter A. There's eight statements or declarations that you want to make about God and His Word. Think of it as a subject and a compliment. I'm going to state one statement about the Word and then one about the Lord. And I gave you an example. I tooled with this uh, earlier in the week. Nothing great. You probably laugh at it, but nevertheless, I'm putting it out here. So here's what I wrote. Uh, one, amazing, there's my A word, is your word to my heart, O God. It lifts me and raises my spirit to do. Arrest my soul and bind my heart to your commandments so that I will be pure and righteous before my Lord. Anticipate his blessings and abundance as I am fully focused on obeying his precepts. Anxious, verse 4, am I to please and obey my king because his word delights my soul. Allow me to dwell in your house day and night, Father, so that I may hear and study your loving statutes. Verse 6, awake my heart, awake my mind, awake my soul by the reading of your Bible, and I will stir and start my day in obedience to you. Absolve me, verse 7, of all wrongs and sins by your gracious love and mercy. Your teachings show me the path of righteousness. And lastly, verse 8, ample are the blessings and mercies of the Creator, sustainer, protector, and provider. Such abundance is only of your words to me. Any of you can do that. Two statements per verse. 
love of the Lord, love of his word. Love of his word, love of the Lord. Go on to B, right? That would be next. Eight verse. You don't have to do it all in one sitting. I'm not suggesting that. But man, how much fun would it be to just do one letter every day as a family? How awesome would that be, you know? Uh, it would so inspire us. Uh, I found that when I was writing this, it was, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a different experience. When I was really focused on doing this, I felt God's spirit moving me with statement. At first, it felt somewhat awkward and like, how am I going to think of that many A words, right? But pretty soon, it started just popping. And it really became a joy, you know? I intend to go on through the rest of the alphabet. Uh, in the next days, weeks, so forth. So do this. Uh, your kids will love it. What a project. And, and try, if you're doing it with children, try not to use big words. I, I use big words like anxious, ample, and so forth, and kids aren't going to get that, right? If you've got high school kids, tell them to do it. Tell them, say, hey, I'm going to do verse 1 and 2. Uh, Mom's going to do 3 and 4. You do 5 and 6, John. You know, Becky, you do 7 and 8. And boom, you know, tomorrow we're going to meet, we're going to have devos together as a family, and we're going to share. Oh, I don't want to do that. It's going to be so bad. I don't know what I'm doing. And so after the hissy fits and, you know, them falling on the floor and salivating and all that kind of stuff, gather them back together and say, you'll live. This is great. And you can do it. And then make sure when you're done with this that you frame it. What a great family testimony. Stay, sitting on the wall, Right? in your living room, dining room, someplace, where you're able to point to that and say, this is what we did as a family. This is what we believe about the Word of God. I guarantee you, they will never forget it. They will never forget it. Maybe some of you have already done this, and you can give testimony to that. That's awesome. So, there's your project for the week. Lastly, what do we say when we say we're going to be renewed by the Word? Well, I have people say to me quite often, I'm in the Word. I try to read the Bible. It just isn't happening for me. I'm not where I need to be. Well, I'm just going to say there's one of two things that are probably wrong. First of all, you're either not really in the Word. I mean, you're just kind of hitting and missing here and there. Or secondly, you don't know how to be in the Word. And trust me, that's not unusual. Everybody has to learn how to study the Bible. It takes effort. You cannot be renewed. You can't be revived. You cannot be used by God in a special way um, unless you're in the Word of God, unless His Word is inspiring you, right? So how do you know how to study the Word? Well, we've got Bible studies everywhere in this church. You know, uh, my wife leads a studying the Word of God study, uh, and she has for years with women all over here. Maybe some of you women have been in that. And they do that in conjunction with a study in the life of Christ. But there's others. There's other methods. It's not about the method. It's about the fact that you're trying, right? You're trying to get into the Word of God. So that's the first thing. You actually have to be in it, and you have to learn how to do it. It doesn't come naturally, right? I can remember as a new believer being so excited about the Word of God. I didn't understand it. it didn't make sense to me. I made some really crazy uh, personal applications off of verses that have nothing to do with what I was making them say. But still, I was sincere. I was trying. I, I, there was nothing I loved better than just getting alone with the Bible 
and reading it. It was, it was just music to me. It just flooded my soul. The second thing that we do wrong is that we don't prep ourselves for time in the Word. This is so important. When we come to the Bible, let's say you've been a believer for some time, and you're still having trouble getting into the Word. Make sure that you're prepping your... Uh, just to open it up, I had a professor in seminary, Howard Hendricks. I loved him dearly. But he talks about that he went to a revival service when he was a young man, and he went forward and received Christ as his Savior. And at the end of the service, he went into the back with a man, and they prayed together. And the man said, here's a Bible, Howard. This is yours. It's free. Take it. Read it. And that was it. And Howard went home, and like most of us probably would do, he just opened the Bible, and it opened to the middle, and there he was in Second Chronicles. And he started reading that, and it made no sense to him. And he thought there was something wrong with him. He got so frustrated that he closed it, put it down, and he didn't look at it again for two years. Now, he's teaching us in our class in Dallas Seminary. And his words to us were, I am so angry. I am so angry that nobody helped me understand the word of God. I wasted two years of my life. Thankfully, it didn't stay in that condition, right? So prepping yourself to get into the word. I'm going to give you just Bible study 101. We have to repent, just like what Wade led us through this morning. You're going to open your word. It's not good enough just to open it and start reading. We want to come to the Lord and say, God, because I want to hear from your Holy Spirit this morning, because I need his filling, I have to make sure that there's nothing between you and me. And God, I just, oh, what's that? Yeah, I lied yesterday, didn't I? Right. And I, I, I broke my commitment to what I should eat or not eat. Oh, I gossiped. Oh, man, I cheated on my taxes. And you just start going through the list, and you just do business with God, point by point. Father, I am sorry. Father, please forgive me. Just like we did in Confession of Sin today. We clear the decks. Secondly, we say, God, may your Holy Spirit fill me. May he give me illumination, just like a flashlight, on this passage that I'm reading. Because reading it in the flesh, and I've done that quite often, just with my eye, in my little brain, I read it, and I don't know about you, but I have words coming in my head constantly, and it's easy for me to go off this path and that path. Uh, uh, there, there were times when I tried to read with the TV on, uh, whatever it was. Kids were running around screaming. Um, you can't focus. But when I ask that Holy Spirit to come in and illuminate this for me, all of a sudden it rivets me. And don't give up if you don't find that to be your case the first time, the second time. Keep after it. Father, send your Holy Spirit. Through your Holy Spirit, I'm going to read. I'm going to have understanding through your Son. I'm going to act on what I'm reading. And because of that, I know, Father, that at some point in my life, you're going to say, well done. Well done, my servant. You persevered. You showed me that you were committed. And thirdly, I'm just going to suggest this. This isn't required, but I think it's helpful is journal. Get yourself a journal and write down whatever it is that God has shown you in your time in the Word. Be renewed. It's one thing to feel like God is telling you something on Tuesday. 
It's another thing to remember what he told you next Tuesday, right? But if you journal, you'll have it. I try to journal off and on. I heard someone challenge us with it, just like I am challenging you. And I failed over and over and over. I would journal for a day or two and then drop it. But somehow, on my very first day in full-time ministry back in Nebraska, August 16th, 1987, I started journaling. I bought myself a little journal book, and I've only missed like a couple days in the time since. Not that it's great. My, kid, my daughters, they're always saying, oh, Dad, we want your journals. And I'm always thinking, boy, you guys, it's going to be so boring for you to read this, right? It's not going to be great, but it's helpful to me. I can go back and see what God has done in my life, where he has convicted me of sin, where he's inspired me to live, how he's encouraged me to be more alive for him. If my goal is to be more for Christ tomorrow than I was today, the journal is an excellent way to get us there. Repent, ask the Holy Spirit in, and journal. Discipline yourself. And if you don't know how to study the Word of God, don't be ashamed of that. Come and get help. Come talk to us. There's only, you know, a zillion people here that could probably help you with that. Uh, but if no one else will, I will. My wife will. I know that people, there's well-meaning people here that love it, love the Word of God. So, as you leave, make it your commitment today that you're going to be renewed by His Word. That is your goal. We don't have the excuse like our brethren before us. They got renewed, but they had to wait till the weekend church service to hear something. We don't have to do that. We have Bibles. Bibles upon Bibles upon Bibles. What do you think God's going to say to us when we stand before him? Oh, I understand. You only had 4.4 Bibles in your home. You only had tablets phones, you know, tape recorders, whatever. No. He's going to hold us accountable. That's the ultimate accountability group right there. And I want to be able to give a faithful answer to him. Right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for our time together in it. I thank you, Father, that it renews us and inspires us. Lord, may we walk with you. And if we've been uh, just hit and miss with our time in your word lately, I pray, Father, that we'd be encouraged to jump back in. Father, if we need to find someone who will teach us how to study the word so that it makes sense, I pray that you would just help us to do that. Help us to be humble. And Father, there are so many people here that would be willing to do that. Father God, may your Holy Spirit just fill us. May we love walking with you. May there be a love of you and a love of your word in our daily lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.